welcome to the Temple of Blair episode Q. Uh, this is a chat with Wally Van Middendorp as part of the History of Roadrunner series. This one is super, super interesting. Uh, Wally had the great pleasure of being in the Roadrunner story twice over. His first run with Roadrunner was in the mid-80s in the Amsterdam head office, uh, and he'd later come back as the senior VP of International, and that's uh, from mid in the mid-2000s up until the end of the independent era. So yeah, this chat is really, really interesting. We talk about all manner of things uh, relating to how Case ran the business, uh, general, how the bands were handed off from the A&R guys, and yeah, it's, it's got a bit of everything, this one, so you should really, really enjoy it. I did anyway. Um, if you're watching on the YouTube instance of this conversation you'll notice that my video drops off about halfway through um sorry about that don't know what happened there either way let's get into it one two fuck shit up so, so what is it that, yeah so what is it that you're doing actually with your old runner <clears throat> so the the project itself is just is a, a kind of a curiosity of mine because i've uh, my relationship with the brand is very much just a fan of metal from like 2005. That sort of, it was my entry point. Um, and basically that little red logo became synonymous with uh, just some a kind of quality. And I knew what to expect. And it was when you sort of put Roadrunner next to other labels, there's giant monolithic, huge like EMIs and your Sonys and, and, and things like that which don't necessarily have that kind of identification um, and that kind of branding. But Roadrunner was always fairly reliable. And it was, it, I just, it, these days it was kind of just intriguing to me as to how that came about. So I'm trying to trace the history of it and trying to speak to all the personnel involved to figure out, well, how, how did it become synonymous with a particular sort of genre and how, was it accidental that it became that mark of quality? Was it, or was it by scrupulous design that um, it had the impact that it did. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm putting all these interviews out as podcasts. And I'm trying to pull together like an episodic presentation, kind of a docuseries um, to present that sort of the, the upshot of those conversations. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's well, the long and short of it, really. Yeah, to sort of answer that question, I think what you'll probably find out is, that I call it from what I've been told, Especially the, um, I would say the, the change point was when Case Wessel realised that he didn't, that he no longer wanted to to depend on third party as a source of repertoire, right. and basically it could have happened. I don't know in the time frame where that all fits, but it could have happened with the hiring of Monty Connor in the US. Yeah. Yeah, this this is the thing. That's this is the exact kind of rabbit hole I want to go down. Like those yeah. moments oh, okay. where, yeah, yeah, where, where he yeah. said yeah, it's a direction. Because because um, I made some notes and stuff. Um, oh, I you. worked for you know with with I worked with, um, and I'll tell you how things got where they go. So I worked with Rotener from 1984 to 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, the and that was also a time where I shared artist uh, office space with Mike, who runs Artschok magazine. But Mike was also in an A and R role for the label. 
Yeah. And um, I remember him always, and we always have that joke when we see each other. Um, he would say, I would present the band to Case. Case would pass on the band. Nine months later, Case would come back to me, talk about the same band. Then it was presented um, to him by, his, by, by the lawyer in New York, and the price would be three times as much as nine months ago. <laughs> I, th I think there was probably a, a, a truth into that. Um, Fair enough. So, so how maybe to, to, to sort of see where I see, and you feel free to ask any questions, but I had some thoughts about this. Mm -hmm. So I started out in the music industry running my own label, independent label in Netherlands, which I, um, after the first 20 releases, I sold that to a record store, importer, exporter, wholesaler, a company called Boudisk. Right. And um, Boudisk more and more became like an exclusive distributor of a number of UK labels in, in Benelux or in Netherlands, to be more precise. But they were still also very much what they call a one-stop import-export. Main, yeah, import and export. Mm -hmm. um, around the time, and this was all sort of like factory records, rough trade, 4AD. Somewhere within Boudisk, we started a in-house label division uh, called Megadisc. And that was a proper label. Um, and, and we became the licensee of factory um, static records from the UK, um, rough trade. Um, there was some, there was definitely some 4AD. And my boss at the time who founded the label or in partnership with the owner of Boudisk, um, he took the label on uh, a few journeys and I followed him on those journeys. So um, he took the label in 84 from Boudisk to Rotterner. Right, yeah. And that was my first entry and my first meeting with Case Wessels. And Case um, had been running the label for a few years. Um, he had worked, I believe, for RCA in Netherlands. We can talk about a little bit of what I know from his past as well, but that would really remind me. Because I have so yeah, many so, questions about his past. <laughs> yeah, so uh, at least from what I know, right? Um, so Case, um, Case or, or whatever his company acquired a 50% shareholding in this label called Megadisc. And with Megadisc, we were at the time, I call it alternative independent artists from the UK or from Australia or from the US. Mm -hmm. The independent music industry was a different mindset. Um, it was more like prove that you can do a great job and we'll give you our next album. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Factory Records is known for doing handshake deals and no contracts, right? That also became their uh, downfall because having no rights. Um, but it was very much in that world. And um, Case wanted to ex expand his company um, and go also more into alternative. But there was a clash because he'd been already by that time, he'd been doing metal. And in, in rock metal, or heavy rock, let's be more precise, call it heavy rock, um, 
it was a different mindset. He could sign artists for seven albums without any questions. And then he felt like, and he said like, why would this independent artist from Australia not sign for seven albums with us? What's wrong with them? Well, they, it was a matter of trust and a different, uh, I call it, uh, uh, yeah, different background, right? different uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting. And um, I joined, I was the label manager at Megadisc. I was the PR person. I was pretty much sort of everything, but not you know, in that label promotion capacity. Mm-hmm. I shared office with Mike. Mike was running his magazine. Mike was uh, a, a doing A&R for Roadrunner. Um, there was a production person, um, Case's assistant slash production person, my ex-boss, Rick. Um, Case at the time uh, was was partners with somebody called Jan van der Linde. Jan van der Linde was a founder of Bertus Distribution or Bertus Import Export. They mm-hmm. still exist. Right. Okay. Um, Jan van der Linde, because there's all connections with people. Jan van der Linde, um, uh, many years later, was also the founder of Provoke Records. Yep. And he sold Provoke Records, which is now the label in print with Mascot. Yep. And one day, there was a new person in our office, and that person, whose name was Ed Van Zyl, Ed Van Zyl, yeah. Who is now the founder, CEO of, um, of Mascot. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I, in different role, I work also with Mascot. And in the way he runs the company... It's so much a blueprint, a blueprint of a roadrunner. Really? And he's successful. Right? Oh, yeah. It, it's a, a, a centralized organization out of Netherlands, not out of the UK, yeah. but out of Netherlands. Uh, very centralized control. Um, very tight. Well, that's maybe a Dutch thing as well. Very tight on money yeah. <laughs> and yeah. deals. Um, but being successful. Right, running business in a smart way. Um, I always look at that. And Ed came in. He, uh, I keep forgetting he was in there in I call it in admin finance department. And Ed was actually a staff staff member who used to work at Bertus. Mm-hmm. And Bertus uh, uh, still is. Well, they moved, but initially for many years was in a town called Burkel Rodenreis, which is like. 20 minutes from Rotterdam, mm-hmm. and Mascot office is in Berkel Rodenreis. Mm-hmm. So, nothing changes, right? Nothing at all. <laughs> um, I know that Jan van der Linde retired from business. Yeah. Um, Jan and Case split their ways after, I, I don't know when that happened, but that was after I left the company. And um, the label I worked for, this company called Megadisc, Mm-hmm. Um, we were in that partnership deal with Roadrunner from 84 to 86 and then moved on to a um, to another partner, basically. In so that, that was only a temporary so, arrangement then? Well, these sort of things happen, right? And even in 80s, independent labels enter into a partnership. Mm. The founding member of the independent label mm-hmm. has what they call a, a buyout clause, you know, when uh, um, 
The other partner wants to buy the shares. He, at the same terms, has a clause to buy back his shares. Mm -hmm. I call it buy back his shares and basically move on. It's the sort of thing what happened. I say it's the sort of thing what happened um, when Case and Rotener moved out in 2006 out of their deal um, and I'm jumping in time now from That's from fine. Universal, which yep. was a 50-50 deal, into their deal with Warner. Um, right, okay. And there are people at Universal who seriously regret that they didn't hold on to Rotener. It's interesting because that, that, that at the people- time was, was, I think it was... When the deal was first being formed, Roadrunner was quite an asset, but then Nickelback's um, Silver Side Up landed. And all of a sudden, that goes 10 times platinum, and Roadrunner, as a asset, is worth a lot more. And I think that happened during the negotiations of that Universal deal. Again, jumping ahead, but yeah. No, 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 no. What, what, in that time frame, just going back, it's not too precise. I remember having conversations with, with Case because... Uh-huh. That's how I came into my second run. Um, yeah. He said, I can't talk to you right now. I've got other priorities. The company was going through a rough time, uh-huh. and he signed a deal with Universal. If he had managed to hang in there, the label and the company had managed to hang in there for another 9 to 12 months, mm-hmm. because Nickelback was already signed to Roadrunner, at least that's how I understand, Yeah, he might have not been forced, I call it forced, nobody's forced, but he might have not had to go into that joint venture with Universal. Right, okay. If you, because then Nickelback broke. That had very little to do with Universal. It was just timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, he'd I, managed to... Sorry, you on. Yeah, if... What I'm saying, if, if, if Nickelback had broken earlier or if the timing had been different maybe he would have not entered into the joint venture with Universal. Ah, uh, okay. I, I seem to, in, in my head, it was happening sort of concurrently at the same time. Oh, sorry, in parallel. Um, but that's not... I'm, well, not my... I say, I say other people might be more precise. Not my understanding, mm. right? I'm saying not my understanding. It was a timing. It was a tough timing. And like I said, you know... Um, it, it or maybe it was simultaneous, but if if the Nickelback breakout album had come earlier, let's mm-hmm. put it this way, then unlikely that case would have entered into that deal with Universal. I, I so want to go into but, this, stuff, but we have gone we have gone twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just yeah. just how also to 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 say this one bit, and then we go back to the start. Yeah. Um, this one bit. Um, he managed to get out of the deal with Universal. I remember we had, and, and I already knew what I was told because I was on the on, 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 on the management team. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, um, uh, a Christmas dinner or celebration, and Case had a speech, and everyone sort of knew something was up. And in the speech, he said, "I've been. Um, we had negotiations. We've. I've been at the notary today." And there's something I want to share with you. I became the full owner of Roadrunner again today. Oh, awesome. There was this sigh of like relief in that room, like, wow. And then he said, but that didn't last very long. 
It lasted <laughs> as long as it took me to sign the paperwork. And we've now entered a majority shareholding deal with Warner. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he did say, and, and, and other people asked him as well, he said he could have done things differently. He could have gone with another, I call it non-major, but independent partner, mm-hmm. maybe with capital venture or venture capital, what's the word, or there was another partner that was very interested in being with him. I think he was also um, looking at his long and successful career. Yeah. And now was this moment, I guess, to basically sell the company, um, move on to something else. I mean, it's not that he retired, but move on to something else. Um, and Books. leave music as is. Leave leave it at a high point, right? Mm-hmm. Leave a very successful company. Um, but anyway, going back to my time, so um, case case. What I understood, he had worked for RCA in Netherlands, um, lost his job or quit. Mm-hmm. And then founded Roadrunner. And one of the first releases on the label, you might be aware of that, was not metal. It was no. a Jim Croce, Croce album. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was other stuff on there that was non-metal. Experimental. But somehow he... Yeah. Uh, but somehow he managed to... I remember from my time, there was a uh, licensing deal with Music for Nations for Benelux in Germany, or GAS, Mm-hmm. And that was great because Music for Nations had Metallica. Yeah. Um, I believe there was a label with somebody called Mike Varney. Shrapnel uh, Records. Oh, Mike Varney. Or Me- I, think, I think there's... And there's Metal... Two, yeah. yeah, both. Yeah, I think there was Metal Blade and Shrapnel Records. I'm not yeah. the expert in that world. But anyway, we had plenty of releases. But in my time... Um, from what I remember, there were no releases directly signed to the company. It was all licensed. For the first that, three years. Like I said, when he, well, at least for the years that I was there. And I think after I, 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 I left in those following years, I do not know when Monty Connor joined the company and when that first Sepultura album was released. 86, 87. Sorry? 86, 87. He, he joined in the yeah, December so, 86. Yeah, and and, and, <clears throat> and that was probably where Case, you know, I call it, Case realized that um, there was a, I call it, well, a, an opportunity, a business opportunity, and that if he signed artists direct to his company, mm. he would no longer depend on, you know, um, third-party people to supply him with artists. I thought that um, he had a handful of artists between 83 and 86, and then it blew up. So I think he had Merciful Fate and Carnivore, Satan, Whiplash. He had a few smaller ones. Could be. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, 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 sorry. Yeah, you're probably right. Let me go back on that. Mm-hmm. Going back to Mike, of course, Mike, uh, Metal Mike. Mm-hmm. Because Mike, Mike would um, um, represent, uh, present artists to Case 
as I said in that moment for a bit, Case would say no, and then his New York lawyer would present the same artist, different price tag. Mm -hmm. There was another person involved in those days. There was a person over at Bertus Distribution, a guy called Dirk, and I don't know what his surname is. Yeah. He's he might still be there. He he, he was he is was what or became one of the partners at Bertus. Dirk was actually from origin from Belgium, and I think he also worked for a record store in Ghent. I seem to remember. Right. And quite often, because Dirk working at a wholesaler called Import Export, mm -hmm. had also had a good feel on. I call it like which bands would move right. Mm -hmm he would probably see that, hey, we got this band. Wow, it starts to shift. There's demand. Yep. And maybe he was, I don't know, whatever role he was in, he would go to Case and say, Case, maybe you should look at signing this band. Yeah, Because you're probably right. Because I remember um, also one of these conversations when I was over with Case, um, he had licensing deals in the U.S. for some of his artists, and I don't know which artist it was. Mm -hmm. It was an artist who had delivered an album that never got released in the U.S., and Case was not bothered at all. He said, I got the advance, and that's substantial, so okay. let's move on. Yeah, that there was things happening in that time. Was that a sound and. Yeah, I wouldn't know, but you're probably right. He must have had a handful of direct signings. Yeah. So it was a mix between that. Um, there was a, maybe even in my time, there was a patchwork of international distributors. Mm -hmm. For many years, he worked with SPV in Germany. Yeah. Um, he worked with Pinnacle in the UK for many years. Neat. Um, he worked from sorry neat records in the uk as well yeah um he worked with intercourt in germany after spv i know in the us he worked with a company called importance yes. no important important records um, yeah yeah and i remember visiting some other time <clears throat> with a cap on my way to jfk just a story and I thought the neighborhood, this was 80s, right? And the neighborhood was so bad. And I thought, like, if the cab driver pulls off the main road and drives into a car, into, like, a holding space and wants to rob me or whatever happens, I'm pretty much done. Yeah. And I, I, I end up at the, at, at the office of, of, of this distributor. And all the windows are, have bars in front of them, right? It was like a fort. Mm. That was when New York was, I call it, uh, intense. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so going back to that time, um, like I said, there was um, my boss at the independent label, Mike, two people, including Ed on finance, production, finance and admin. There was a production manager, and there was also a cases partner, Jan van der Linde. Um, I think actually Mike and I also had some, I don't know if it's Mike and I, but I do actually say that Mike and I also had somebody else in our room, like an assistant, like more admin. Uh, Dennis Clint. I remember even. No, 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 no. A girl called Rebecca. 
Right, okay. That was all early days. There was a the production person called was called Wendy. My boss was called Rick. There was Jan van der Linde, um, Han de Waal, who was the finance director, Ed van Zeil, um, me, this Rebecca. And I remember coming from where I came from that Rotunner was one of the first companies who had a, I really believe we had a computer network. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was also like... time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a database with yeah. bios. I seem to remember that. That's it. So, uh, it's a, that, that, in terms of like, I usually have like a, a structure question of, of questions, but with yourself, sure. because you have like two tenures with um, Roadrunner, I've just wanted to let you know, you are absolutely smashing it. This is exactly the stuff I wanted to go into. But while we're on this sort of at the infancy stage, um, you mentioned earlier the seven album deal. Typically, there'd be an advance of about five grand, if I'm not mistaken. Um, was that conventional for the time? This is something I don't understand, because when I read more about the deals that the bands had, it feels like cases brought quite an antiquated, an old style of, of managing a label into a, a metal setting, really. Was that normal? Well... I think with Case's background, Case, I don't know if you know, um, he used to work for Polygram. Yep. And Polygram, I don't know if you know, Polygram was the Dutch-owned um, record label from Philips. And mm -hmm. Polygram was our yep. phonogram, Polygram, Polydor, Mercury. It was a global player. And I even believe that um, but I'm not, I believe even Case for a number of years ran Polygram in New Zealand. So he was a very, at that time, um, a very seasoned um, record industry executive. Yeah. Um, so yeah. in that way, he, he, his background was not like, for example, let's say Alan McGee at Creation. I start somewhere and I release records by cool bands and I learn while while doing the process. Um, I see in that world also throughout the years, um, Case had a very smart and, and no, Case had a very good business sense and I really respect him for that. And one of the other, I call them executives you know, in the 80s, already smart and very business savvy is somebody like Martin Mills mm -hmm. at Beggars. Mm -hmm. yep. Where he started his imprints with Excel, Young Turks, all throughout the years, um, 4AD. That's, that's Beggars is, is at the time, Jotuner was probably the biggest, I mean, uh, biggest independent group, right? Uh, because yeah, independent was still defined by 50, less than 50% uh, ownership by a major. So, um, yeah, um, Rotuner was the biggest. Mm. Mm. So in, 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 that, in that way, Case's business was traditional and also think about this. I always keep thinking and I still work, work with, you know, um, with rock acts, um, there is a different work. There's a different attitude. Um, yeah. 
I think the work ethic is, yeah, the work ethic and attitude is different within rock music or metal mm-hmm. than it is in, in Indian alternative. Mm-hmm. Trying to say that, and I go back in my mind, it's just how I look at it. Think about this. You're a band, you're a band from Birmingham, right? And there's plenty of them from 60s, 70s. And you're or from another part of the UK, or for that matter, US. And your choice is to either work in a in the mines or steel plant. Yep. Or go in a band and be successful. Mm-hmm. You would sign anything to get out of that situation, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that even in eighties, Thatcher era people would sign anything to get off the dole. I had a friend, friend of mine mm-hmm. who were in the band. They signed to Polydor. They went from 60 pounds a week on the dole to 100 pounds being in the band. Simple, right? Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, within yeah, yeah. rock, I really find within rock, and I really love that, um, a great um, approach to, to, yeah, to making music, um, Great work ethic. Yeah. You know, all these sort of things Mm. where I've always found that in, uh, in indie people were different. Um, I call it critical. Um, Give an example. I had a promo trip with King Diamond in Paris. I think it was Paris. Yes. So he did his promo trips in full makeup he just finished awesome. doing it, took the makeup off, and then somebody who was late or possibly cancelled did show up. Mm-hmm. And he, okay. without any sort of second thoughts, he went back in to be presentable in the persona that he wanted to present and did the interview. I can imagine that, just by gut feeling, that an indie artist would have said, I'm done for today. I'm not going to change my costume. That guy is late. Right? Attitude. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And like I said, throughout my years, the people I've met, and the people I had the privilege of working with, with Rotener or after Rotener, but mainly during Rotener's time and even now during during the work I do for a US-based management company, artists are very, very committed. I'm not saying that artists in different giants are not committed, but it's a, it, there's a difference to that. There's a, um, yeah, there's that really, um, really a, a mentality of hard, you know, working extremely hard, being committed. Where did, do you think um, Case picked that up from? Did he... A&R Black Sabbath in the 70s. I've heard that somewhere. I've never heard of, heard of that. No. <laughs> no, I it just seems think... interesting that he um, definitely sort of caught wind in it. As you say, he's a veteran of that industry. He must know, especially with the disco boom in the 70s, these acts are expecting this as their day job. Uh, indie acts, as you say, are expecting have this kind of attitude. Metal is where you can have a lower investment but a higher return. So this is the kind of the model I'm going to approach it with. That seems maybe that's where he picked it up from, just experiencing that range of artists and that range of clientele 
back in his, you know, at that point, yeah. 20. I think, I, I, I think Case, um, you know, how he ran the company, um, very, in a very smart way. He found, he found, I call it, a space in the market where with his, mm. I call it, with his skills and experience, he found a model that worked and was very successful. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. the, the way that, you know, when, so, so my, let's say my three years, 84, 86, that was all very early days. You know, as, as we just said, there was licensed labels, there was a small team, there were some artists. I think Grotener, yeah. you know, um, started more from that world when he, you know, when Monty Connor joined and, and, and I say yes, other definitely. people, but Monty Connor, most definitely. Um, mm -hmm. And that's also when the company became bigger. And when I look at the company throughout the years that I know them from being in Netherlands, they moved from Amsterdam to, mm -hmm. Let me let me sort of think. Where did it go? From maybe from Amsterdam to Hilversum, from Hilversum to Amstelveen, from Amstelveen to a place called Naarden. Case bought this did this partnership deal um, with this company called Arcade, who were a TV merchandiser, like TV compilations, right? Mainly dance compilations, very successful. But mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, it was sort of like an empty shell because you don't have rights as a third, as, as like a compilation company, right? Um, so there were some, some of the deals he did didn't work out. There was a moment also where play it against him, Pias, Edel and Rotener wanted to form some sort of major independent. Oh, right. But, cool. but to cultural differences... That all didn't work out. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's not really necessary to go into the detail, but it was a weird mix of characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, with the owners from Play It Against Him, Case at Rotener and, and his friend Michael Haantjes at Edel. They, yeah. they got along very well. Um, but something business-wise didn't work out. Um, I think at the time... Edel went to the stock market. Uh, that's probably what it was in Germany right. successfully. <laughs> right. And then yeah, yeah. something that, that, that the value of the stock price dropped and Hand just had to buy back and no longer be a public company. It had an impact on this whole thing that happened. Right. This, I, I believe that was probably late nineties. Mm -hmm. So, so, so there was stuff where a case, did a few, I call it adventures, and wasn't successful. But right. the way the way Rotener was run, um, when I rejoined, and I came basically with a gap. I came from Sony Music in Netherlands, so I'd been at this. I was co-founder of Play It Against Them in Netherlands, running Play It Against Them distribution licensing in Benelux. Um, when I joined Sony, a new world opened up, and I call it structures and reporting and admin, right, procedures. But then when I joined Rotener, I was blown away by, I call it the control, how the company was run. Yeah. 
and how tight and call it a Dutch way, but there was also, there was a team, of course, how, how you could not spend money without approval. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It sounds obvious, but I, I needed also when I, I was head of international throughout those years, ex North mm-hmm. America. So I had all the territories, ex North America reporting into me in the end. And, and I did all the licensing deals uh, right. slash Alter Bridge, Black Label Society, uh, Atreyu, Alexis on Fire. There were others. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not move with anything without three signatures. Who were the three? So, well, and it was great. It was deal analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how much do we pay? How much are we going to spend on marketing? Mm-hmm. What is the sales expectations of our teams in the territories? Oh, they're saying it's sixty thousand. Let's um, that's wishful thinking from those guys. Let's cut that down by I don't know. Let's say twenty percent or thirty percent. Forty forty thousand is what we feel safe with to make an offer. And I must say that I call them my deals. Nothing is my deal, right? But that the deals. Most of the deals we did at the time called them business deals because they were established artists, always recouped. Yeah. Because there was a formula. And the other thing, Jim, is that artists were keen on signing with Roadrunner mm-hmm. because of the brand. They had grown up with the label, mm-hmm. were maybe never signed and approached for direct signing, mm. but then were honored to be with that label yep. internationally. That was amazing. You kind of just answered the big question, which is effectively, was it accidental? Or was it deliberate? And I'm really interested in like, you say there was a formulaic approach to it, to um, getting bands in. Now we know sort of the Monty Connors, the Howie Abrams and the Mike Gitters of the world and Ron Berman and um, all those guys they're the experts and they're the music guys. So I imagine in, in terms of like the production line of getting music out of the door, it starts with them and the product that comes down from them. Is that where say yourself and the business side would go, let's, let's crunch the numbers on these. Is there a formula? Is that how? No, 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 no. I wasn't, it was interesting how culturally, how headquarters was not in the U S or in the UK. Yeah. Um, in that way, in my role, especially with the international territories, mm-hmm. I was like, it was a little bit like United Nations mm-hmm. being the, the foreign, uh, department, the ambassador, mm-hmm. blending the cultures, get everyone aligned. Right. Right. Um, the U S was, became very much had nothing to do with the work we did, I call it internationally. Of course, they were the source of the repertoire. I was not involved with any of those signings. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, Monty Connor or Gitter or Berman or any of the A&R people had to fight in A&R presentations to get yeah. Case to sign off. Everyone would say, great artist Case would say, don't feel it, we're not doing it. Awesome. I've heard, I don't know who it was. I've heard that one time he was so brutal in a Dutch way <laughs> that one of the A&R managers uh, started crying. <laughs> wow. Maybe. 
maybe. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, Monty, throughout the years when I was there, so 2004 to 12, it was Berman, Monty, Gitter, and there was a young guy who still, he signed Young the Giant in those late years. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy called Max. I don't know if that was his first name or his surname. Stefan Max. He, Max. I yeah. think he's still A&R at Atlantic. Um, pull something Case up. wanted to go. Case wanted to go somewhere else. Uh, that was Young the Giant. Um, Amanda Palmer, mm-hmm. Dresden Dolls. Mm-hmm. You know, sorry, I'm, I'm, and and I'll, I'll go back to it. But Amanda Palmer, I'll give you a funny story because you can edit it. Amanda <laughs> okay. Palmer hated hated the label. Okay, she. Bloody hated all of us. <laughs> so she's doing, a, she's doing a gig on a Monday in, in Amsterdam. Me and my international product manager, we go and see her in a town called Utrecht, take her out for dinner, have a nice conversation. We pay for dinner, we pay for drinks. Everything is cool and smooth. I you know, go back to home, go back to the gig. Everything's sort of okay. Next day, I walk into Kay's office and said, like, what do you think of the gig? He said, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I was okay. And he said, then he said to me, what happened with you guys uh, over dinner on Sunday? I said, nothing. <laughs> All went smooth. He said, he said, then he said, well, you know what Amanda told me that you're in her top five of most disliked people at the label. <laughs> what did but, you <laughs> She, she felt it was such a mismatch culturally. Right, but okay. when she went independent and did some great stuff on her own with crowdfunding, mm-hmm. it was great to read, though, that she gave credit to the label. And she said, if the label had not tour supported me, supported financially, right, mm-hmm. on international touring, I would have not been able to have the career that I have now. There's a great interview um, done with the, I can't remember the, the chap's name, the, the, the other part of Dresden Dolls. Um, for another podcast, Ryan. yes, yes, um, with another podcast called the Meep Meet Podcast, which is um, I'll call him, I'll call him a colleague with um, Ryan Rainbow, and he kind of said the same thing that um, he it, I don't think he, he doesn't hate the label. I think he, he he treats it with a lot of reverence for what for what they did for the band. But it's a different. It's interesting that they tell that Amanda story. <laughs> Case, Case at one time, I think he wanted, there was a guy, I, I forgot what he was called, John from Brooklyn or something. Uh, there was some sort of character, street poet, I don't even, or something from Brooklyn or he was on, he was, he stood near the Brooklyn Bridge, some sort of thing. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me, oh. so, Case wanted to sign that person, and I think he signed the person, sort of like wanted to be in going into comedy. And we worked with this guy called Doug Stanhope. Stanhope. Yep. <laughs> My God, how his manager, his manager would be Doug Stanhope. I don't know. I, I, he would play in London like every night. And I go and do my bit, right? Because 
the manager again or Doug, there was such a disconnect with the label and the culture. I, mm. I mean, if you take the UK team run by Mark Palmer mm. and run very efficient, very rock, very metal, right? And again, great way how Mark ran the company. Mm. Again, you know, respect, right? But this cultural thing, bringing in a comedian, a stand-up comedian, blew Mark away. And Mark would be so, I call it, let's say, direct with his opinion. The manager would sort of say, I don't want to talk to this guy. Get him out of, you know, don't want to talk to him. So I was there sometimes like really feeling like, oh, Case, what do you get us into? How can I get out of this? But I couldn't because, yeah, Doug yep. Stanhope. And there was some, like I said, some dude from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. So why, why did, was it Case's idea to bring on comedians? Was it just something, just something to try? Yeah. You know, Tim, what I understand, right, Every label owner, I'm sure Branson, um, well, look at Factory, <laughs> Tony Wilson, yeah. or Rob Gretton, right? doesn't matter. Every one of these characters, and they're all strong characters and, and, and personalities, they will sign a project or something they strongly believe in. Mm. And whoever, the numbers guy, the BA guy, mm -hmm. and everyone turns no, that makes them even more determined to say yes. Yep. Right? Yep. <laughs> but going back from what I remember, and this is what I liked about the company, it, it was about talent development. Um, Case wanted to sell with the artist signed to the label reach mainly in the, well, US, UK, run a successful company, hit gold and platinum albums. Mm -hmm. And it happened. And and that was great achievements, right? Yeah. With Theory of a Dead Man, maybe with Slipknot. Yep. And there were others that, that hit that gold album status, which was 500,000 copies. Mm -hmm. And we would also have bands going out on this road rage tour, and I remember one with Trivium, very early days. And the two or three other bands. Three Inches of Blood. Never made, yeah, never made it onto a second album on the label. But mm -hmm. he would take that as a consequence. He, he, he was there, I say he, the company, was there to do what they were supposed to be doing mm -hmm. and saying, okay, we have an international structure. We can put bands on tour in the UK, Germany, Benelux, France, for example, right? With the help of an agent. We can put a package tour together. We can do label branding. We can do lots of things. And 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 then it will be up to the to the to the fans and to to the artist to show if they can, you know if they're if they're the real thing or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So clearly all labels have failures yeah. and all failures disappear very quickly. Right? <laughs> They're pressed under the carpet, mm -hmm. but trust me, I'm sure that 
4AD or Excel or Mute Records or you know, and other labels. They all had failures. Sure. Acts that didn't work out. But just saying that, that what I liked very much about the label working f- with that team was a uh, high level of, be- you know, a high level of, of uh, well, a very structured company. Mm-hmm. It was tight. It was very tightly run. There were procedures, great people running the teams in the UK and Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, case would allow me to, especially, you know, get more involved with territories that I call it needed my help because he said, um, we need to make sure, for example, I use it that, you know, that all companies are in profit, Mm -hmm. right. And do what you think is necessary. Mm-hmm. Not in the way that I could simply get make people redundant, but he said, yeah, yeah. spend time. And and if you need to go, and I remember doing this, need to go to Japan twice a year to build our business with promoters and industry, you should go. Mm-hmm. But I also remember doing these trips and it wasn't a holiday, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, no, but it was great. He, he would... Case would, and I, and I made a few notes actually, you know, before I call, and it was interesting. And then you can ask me anything you want to, and I, I got some names for you as well. <laughs> what was interesting, there was three things that I thought about. So I, 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 and then you ask any question. Cool. Case, Case was one of the things uh, when we had the 25th anniversary of Rotener. Yeah. He didn't want to do any interviews. Mm-hmm. And we asked him, he said, you can do the interview, Monty Connor can do them, Mike Palmer can do them, Hank Hacker in Germany can do them, anyone, I'm not going to do them. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's the reason? And he said, my thinking is it's all about the artist and not about the label owner. Mm-hmm. He was not one of those guys who was in the forefront. He was not one of those guys who was in Billboard or in... in uh, in music week yeah yeah plus so he was very someone's gonna way. try if, if his name's out there people are gonna send him demos of course yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and and that was interesting then towards the in the in the final year when we were already in warner mm-hmm. it was nearly our time i believe that we knew that i don't know he knew or i knew or he and i knew or he, i don't know how it was but somewhere in those last months, one time he said to me, and I always remember that, and it was really great, and not in a negative way. He said, mm-hmm. and, and I, I still have that in my mind, he said, also said, you are as good as the company you work for. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if you work for a great company, you're in demand, mm-hmm. right? I was holding... The checkbook, not really, but you know, you know what I mean. But I was the entry point for a lot of managers mm-hmm. internationally into the company in those last years. Mm-hmm. So that that gave me status, right? I'm just yeah. saying that made me relevant. And the minute when I call it, and it's different, right? When you're not holding that big checkbook, 
I still have lots of contacts and I still work in music and I'm really happy about that. Mm-hmm. But at a far, I call it different level, yeah. right? I'm no longer the senior vice president international. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I can give myself that title if I want to for any of my business opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a title, right? And you know yeah. what happens at labels? From VP, you become SVP. And from SVP, you become EVP. And it, you know, it doesn't change your role. You know why yeah. you get this title change? Because you get a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. They need to bump you up into a next level, next yeah, yeah. you know tier pay. That happens at I call it big labels. Titles mean nothing because mm-hmm. I was head of international. I still had four people in my office mm-hmm. when I was VP, SVP, or just starting out there. Same four people. Mm-hmm. But I like that what Kay said. I always remember that you're as good as the company you work for. Yeah. So. I learned a lot from 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 him, um, and I thought about that. You know, throughout the years, for I call it companies, right? And that that I was really full time employed. Now I'm freelancing, and I work with other people, mm-hmm. and there's some great people in there as well. But out of when I compare from Buddhist, which was eighties to Roadrunner in 80s, Piaz in 90s, Sony in late 90s, early 2000, Roadrunner in, in two, let's say, 2004 to 12. Yeah. Roadrunner had the best, really, the best structure, um, procedures that I ever encountered at a label. Yeah. yeah. It was top level. And... That also having that tight procedure in place, right? Rules in place on production. Um, I think that's also how how they ran margins, right? Yeah. If you do a million albums and you can save, I, I call it very Dutch, <laughs> and you can save ten cents, ten p on artwork, mm. right? That's a hundred thousand. Yeah. And if you were to, sorry, go on. yeah, if you can do that, not only on a million albums, but on ten million albums, it's all of a sudden becomes a million. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's there's, I got so many, so many questions. Um, just because you've completely nailed sort of like the landscape I wanted to interrogate. Um, so I'll, I'll ask what this I, because what I, sorry Jim Jim, and then you go in questions because then I go over my notes just just to because I made some notes right go for it so clearly clearly the, the company was very Netherlands based mm-hmm. um, Hank Hacker Germany been with the company for 20 years when the German office closed down mm-hmm. Mark Palmer now at Nuclear Blast 20 plus in the UK Monty Connor over 20 years, right, up to 2012. So that's, yeah, also over 20 years. Case had lots of loyal people, and yeah. his business affairs manager, Marcus Turner, still works with him in Case's new business venture, book publishing. Yes. People are – there's lots of loyalty. Just, just to give you some names, and you might sort of like think about what you want to do with him or not. So yes. – 
a person that knows a lot about the years where I wasn't involved mm-hmm. is this Dutch person called Alain Verhaver. He's now at Epitaph. He was also in the international department early days. There's a person called Stefan Kustner. I think he came from SPV and was an international person in the New York office. There's a person called Frank Strobler, who was head of international in the Dutch office. Then there's Paolo D'Alessandro. You might have heard that name. Um, he was he was head of international before I joined the company. Uh, okay. So I think it was me, Paolo, Frank, and then maybe Alain. And somewhere in the U.S., there's this person called Stefan Kustner. Stefan knows a lot about the U.S. company. Now, clearly, Monty Connor does. Mm-hmm. Somebody called, uh, I don't know if he's on your list, Duck Keogh. As, um, across that name? I've come across that name a lot. I've, I've, one thing I've, I've tried to avoid doing is contacting people who still work for Roadrunner because of the range of the interviews that I've had. No, he doesn't. He doesn't? No, no. I thought, really? I swear. No, no, all the people. No, no, no. Dokio, Dokio was the GM, been there for a long time with Case. He was also in finance, in head of admin. Um, no, Dokio then worked for a number of years on a publishing venture with Case, music publishing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's currently, I don't know what he's up to. No, 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 he's still, you know, not many people. The only people that I know, because I, I sometimes see them, mm-hmm. um, that still work for Rotterner, or sorry, for Warner Rotterner, um, Danny Kaur, who's now at the Warner UK office. He's the Rotterdam UK person. Mm-hmm. He joined sort of in the final years. Yep. Um, there is, I forgot what her name is, Susie, and I forgot what her surname is, but I can find that out. Mm-hmm. She is still working with a number of Rotterdam acts over at um, Atlantic. Okay. And there's Chris Brown. Okay. Um, there might be a few other people within the Warner system mm-hmm. um, in different roles, but that's pretty much it. Jonas <sighs> Nexon. Oh, yeah. yeah, Jonas Nexon is Spine Farm. Yeah. Mark Palmer is Nuclear Blast, as mm-hmm. I mentioned. Um, Ron Berman, where's he these days? He's Mascot. Mascot. Yeah. And there's Andy Connor, Nuclear yeah, Monty Connor, Nuclear Blast. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know where Hank Hacker went. He set up an independent marketing company. Maybe he still runs that. There was something called Black Mop in Germany, but I think he went also went to book publishing or something. And there might be a f- one or two other people, as I said, more from IT or sales marketing that are in merch. Oh, yeah, there's a... There was a person, business development within Rotterner, who is now within the Warner, I call it merge division. Mm-hmm. But again, those are all people from final years. Right, the yeah, yeah. Long, the long-timers, the old-timers, um, nobody, everyone was let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Simple. <laughs> Warner had their own people, and we were too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. 
The, the, the reason I've not been contacting people who currently work for Roadrunner Warner, as you say, is, is because there is sometimes a conflict of interest. Um, but I, I understood Doug to still be working there, but I guess, um, I guess I'm wrong. No, 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 no. No, and I, if you want to, I can, you know, if you want to, I can connect you with him or ask him if he wants to, you know, then. Um, no, I, st- I, I saw him last summer. Okay. Um, we're still in touch. Uh, when I'm in New York, I most of the time see Monty Connor. Mm-hmm. Um, I work for management from Blackstone Cherry, so I see Ron Berman on the emails. <laughs> um, no, I mean, Great um, not, not that I have a daily relationship with him because I deal with the international people from from Mascot. Yeah. Um, I sometimes deal with UK um, um, Michelle Kerr and... Um, What's her name? Kristen. They run this PR company called Cosa Nostra. Yeah, yeah. I'm in touch with uh, Michelle. Kristen, Kristen Springs. Mm-hmm. There's um, Austin Collins and Ollie Walker who run a radio promotions company in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just think if there was anyone else from that UK office at the time still in music or still in my world in music. I don't think so. Mm. And Danny Core, of course, he he made the switch to Warner, right? Okay, okay. And there's a person from the German office who made the switch to Warner in Germany as well, right? But not a lot. Of Most the of the no, no. She was a product manager called Larissa. There were other people, you know, um, Warner Hamburg at the time. They found it awkward to have a another office in, uh, you know. They found it awkward to have another office in Cologne, like saying, we, we have desks here in Hamburg. Why do we need another office in Cologne? It was a similar thing that happened one time with, with, with the Rotterdam UK office where some finance person said, uh, I think, guys, you should actually move into the Warner building. Mm-hmm. Um, really, and be observed and feel unhappy. Guy said, well, it's a financial decision. <laughs> Warner, Warner, uh, you know, Warner clearly, when they acquired the company, we for a number of years, we in my world, we switched from independent distribution to Warner distribution. Distribution, right? We were still in charge, but the minute when Warner um, acquired hundred percent of the company, Rotterdam, and that was in two thousand ten, mm-hmm. and the first people were let go by summer two thousand eleven. Yeah. Um, it became what, what you call intercompany license. So I could no longer say to my guy, I call it to my guy mm-hmm. in Stockholm, I want you to spend $4,000 on Stone Sour. Right. Because he would say, um, nope, not within my budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. That changed things so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it inhibits the the personal relationships you've built with the, the acts themselves. So, I guess it kind of it, it kind of prov- it produces obstacles where for the last thirty years the label didn't have any. Yeah, well, think about this, right? Um, um, when when you are a independent entrepreneur. You can do what you like and sign what you like, right? Mm-hmm. And in the end, find your signature is the one that signed that makes the contract, you know, uh, legal. Yeah. And then you enter enter into 
a major label world and everything needs to go to a deal approval process. Although you do the, do run that similar process internally, right? I told you I needed to get signatures, but if you're the founder of, of the company, you lose your independence. That made it tough. I think that made it tough for, for, for case had nothing to do with the people. It was how a major or the company acquires you, how they run business. And then they look at you and say, if we close that office, bring people into our building, we can save, I don't know, X amount of pounds per year. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some pretty funny stories about um, Download Festival 2012, uh, which had quite a lot of Roadrunner acts on. And this was after a lot of people were dropped and a lot of con- um, record contracts were up for re-signing and things like that. And obviously all your Roadrunner staff were no longer anything to do with these bands. So they had to send one Paul Warner guy <laughs> to go and like try and, and try and calm all these bands down because, and try and reassure them that the, the label was still active. <laughs> I think it was different though. Yeah. Do you, the, 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 the I, I mean, yes, it, it came as a shock to people, right? Mm-hmm. And some people used made 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 some noise of that. Mm-hmm. Let let me be very clear. Um, if you work for an independent and you're acquired by a major, and we can use a few examples: Virgin, right? Mute. You know that you're going to go into the major label, and that it's going to be a different structure, mm-hmm. right? And most of the time. And there's other examples, A&M, right? Independent companies acquired by one of the four at the time, four or five majors. Mm-hmm. You know that, that even as the owner, you might get a contract for three years. And after three years, you're probably out. Yeah. And the only guy that I can remember in this sort of situation is Seymour Stein of Sire Records. Okay. Who's in... Sire still exists. He's in an ambassador role, right? He's really in an ambassador role. He might sign an artist, but he's, yeah. Mm. Mm. It's it's different. Yeah. 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 It's so, so I, I, the, the thing, right. Let me, let me put it this way. When Warner fully acquired the company Mm. in 2010, and when you know that staff is being let go in a number of offices mm-hmm. and that certain offices are being closed by the Warner affiliate, yeah, you can start thinking about like that it's a matter of time. Yep. That's my thinking. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, yeah. it didn't come as a surprise to me. Um I I had a very simple choice. You know, at at that first round of redundancies in Netherlands, stay or go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I decided to stay, and I had a like I said, I had a team with two international product managers and assistant. And towards the end, I only had one international product manager, 
and I used to have, it doesn't matter, I'm just using it as an example. Yeah. I used to have my own office space. I had a big, massive desk just because I'm a tall guy and I like a big desk and there was space. Had nothing to do with status. Um, it just happened. And you know what? In the end, in my final year, it was all fine. Mm-hmm. I was sharing with two, um, what were they, royalty accounting guys who were not even roadrunner staff. Right. Right. Didn't matter. Mm. You know? How did Chase take that, that those last couple of years then? Because you said um, when he initially signed the dotted line in 2006, I think you said, it, you, you said he might have been reflecting on like, you know, 35 years of a great, oh, not 35, however long, 25 years, yeah, of a great career with Roadrunner. You think as, as you know, the wolves at the door were sort of getting a bit closer, was he ready to go? Or was he um, still kind of, not too happy that his baby was getting uh, bossed around by Warner. No, I think, I think he, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why, well, I can only speak about impression. Sure. Um, he, 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 he knew what, yeah, I call it, he knew what could, what would happen or could happen yeah. when you go into a full ownership deal with a major. Mm. And, and I believe he did not want to be in that ambassador role. Yeah, yeah, right. Didn't yeah. you know? That's that's how I call it. Yeah. He he is too much of an entrepreneur, business person, and also independent person. Mm-hmm. That he, whatever how he left the company, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not. I don't know any of that, but he sort of left pretty much at the same time as I did. Summer mm-hmm. of I believe summer of 2012 or a little later. Um, he. He then started, you know, um, setting up um, or acquiring two book publishing companies. Yeah. He's a business person in that respect. Mm-hmm. And clearly, as I said, seasoned executive, right? Think about what we, where we started. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's worked for Polygram, worked, worked overseas for Polygram, worked for RCA, was probably made redundant at RCA. He yeah. knew what the, how the major label system works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew what kind of deal to enter into with Universal, not to give up control. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an amazing thing. Think about this. When we were with Universal, it was, when I joined, it was Universal distributed in France. So US, in the territories where we had our own offices, it was Universal distributed. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else was a patchwork of independent people. Yeah. The people that he'd been working with for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And he managed to hold on to some of these. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much till the bitter end. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Again, yeah, loyalty yeah. and respect. No, I mean that. How, not to price so, too much, but how is he these days? Is he, is he okay? Is he just going, getting on with work? Last time... <laughs> There was something, you know, and I was just actually, I, I, I told my wife about our conversation and I said to her, make me think about something, you know, about memories and plenty of memories, right? And um, I actually, clearly at the time, you know, when I left the company, it was 2012, mm-hmm. um, we parted ways and, and there was no, you know, there was, it was all natural, smooth, you know, my actually my 
colleague, my coworker, did my exit deal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he was next in line, right? Pretty much, he was the last person, the last man standing. Didn't yeah. involve case whatsoever. It was all smooth, professional, great. Um, so I've been in touch with with ex colleagues and maybe had a lunch with case throughout those years. And then last year, I think it was last year, or was it earlier this year? I don't even remember, Jim. Um, there was a moment where I actually, I dropped him because something came up and I sent him an email. Yeah. And I sent him an email to really thank him for my eight years at the label. Yeah. And to really, you know, thank him for the experience, uh, working with him mm -hmm. and that, I just wanted him to know that, right? There was just that moment where I thought, did I actually say this to you when we split ways or was it just casual, I'll see you next week in some other place? Yeah. And I thought it was really, I really had that, uh, yeah, I call it that urge to reach out to him. And the great, greatest thing was he said, clearly we're now, yeah, it must have been during COVID already. He said, we're in this weird situation. When we're out of this situation, And when you're back in Amsterdam, let me know. And we'll definitely try to go and meet up for lunch. And I thought, how great is that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was great. <laughs> you know? it's, it's so interesting with the people, the, because obviously I speak to bands and I speak to people like yourself and every single person who I've spoken to who, who worked at the label really consider him like a paternal father figure, They have a lot of reverence for him. There's a lot of really great stuff. Even if someone was let go by the, by him, there's always stories like um, Gary Levermore. He he worked with uh, Play Against Sammy. He also owned Third Mind Records. Yes. He was acquired. Um, but when he was let go, Case was the guarantor on his property. <laughs> like he signed he signed on for a new flat or something like that. And he um, Case was the guarantor. Andy Saunders. Um, Case managed to pay yeah. a little bit extra money just to while he got on his feet. There's so many interesting stories about how uh, the reverence he had for his team, and I think it's it's so interesting because metal as a community and as a as a product as as a thing is very community and love driven, and it's strangely reflected in how uh, Case looked after his guys. Yeah, I, I think that was, uh, Jim, that's what I was saying. It was amazing. I, 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 came, I came out of a major label. Um, let me see, what, what was my age at the time? 2001, I was 44. I was mm. like the successor of the guy running Sony Music in Netherlands, and then I bumped into a brick wall called Major Label corporation <laughs> and somebody in new york probably one my one day my boss calls me in looks kind of sad and i thought like what the hell is going on yeah and he says yeah i'm very sorry it's not it's not my choice i've been told that you're let go and i asked a few questions and he said don't even ask the questions it's not relevant somewhere up in the higher tier you're not fitting with a major label mm-hmm And and I came back with Case, and I, you know, first of all, I was really happy that he offered me styling as a freelance opportunity because I would I, I came in earlier yeah. to bring find find products for his company in Australia and Japan. He also had a Dutch company called CNR, 
which right. came out of that arcade venture. Mm-hmm. And I also needed to bring them repertoire. Mm-hmm. And then when the head of international Paolo left, there was a sort of gap. He thought he was going to run it out of New York. And then he made me the offer. Mm-hmm. And it was a fair offer, but it was way below. And it's not about money, right? Yeah. It was way below of what I had in my previous role at Sony. Mm-hmm. But when I actually left the company, I felt my financial, and it, it is sometimes important, my fi- financial reward had grown throughout the years, mm-hmm. right? He recognized, and he said, well, tough shit, you weren't here in the, in, in, in the years when Nickelback exploded, Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> so I said, fair enough, you know, you've given me this great opportunity, and I really mean that, you know, like... Um, when, so I say, four, uh, yeah, there was, this was 2001, 2002, so 44, 45. You sort of think like there's three major labels, four major labels. BMG was still there. Where can I go? Yo, Pias was one of the big indies in Netherlands. Where can I go? Mm-hmm. So I was grateful, happy, learned so much. And I, I, I really must say, you know, I learned so much about um, structures, business analysis, mm-hmm. but also learned so much about a new world of music because my background when I was at this company called Megadisc, we were in a world of Prodigy, Pixies, um, Triffids, you know, the indie acts. Yeah, yeah. And then being thrown into this metal world. The great thing is, I must say, I, I love working in that world, and I still do, right? Mm -hmm. The great thing was, I'm sure that some artists that I worked with looked at me and sort of like, you're not a metal guy. (laughs) So we don't have to have that conversation about this new cool band and the B-side on their seven-inch. I'll have that with your product manager or with the Dutch product manager or with a PR person. But you seem to run a tight ship on international. Mm -hmm. I feel that it's working. So all good. And I loved, and, and that's what I'm saying, Jim, the, 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 that work ethic, and I mean that with any of the artists, and I still work with Hailstorm, Shinedown, Blackstone Cherry, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. The music is great. The live shows are very dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, great people. Yeah, yeah. And I've mm-hmm. had my issues you know i've had my issues with let's say not my fault it sort of happened with a dave mustaine who was a little you know ignoring me (laughs) he knew i was there he just didn't want to see me but then his manager made sure right and i had a talk with him Mm -hmm. and next time i saw dave mustaine he said sorry about that things were not in a good shape that day i said dave (laughs) That's fine. Um, there's a point where, you know, I don't remember this stuff. There's a point, Jim, you go home, right? Yeah, yeah. When you can't afford, and, and, and I respect that. After a gig or after an event, when somebody is tired, has done their bit, and they have to see this other person from the label, and every territory has a person, you just want to sort of like not see a person. Yeah. And And sometimes I just went home and I said, to the manager, I was at the gig, your artist, you know, no offense, was busy doing other stuff, meeting with friends. 
you know, all good. But mm. it was one o'clock in the morning. I went home. Yeah, yeah. But great, great people. No, yeah. I, I, that's what I keep saying. Great mindset. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, by the way. I, uh, I just, you know, two out of all of my years in music, right? I mean, I two out of my, even my years at Sony, mm-hmm. um, where we had to deal with some superstars and superstar behavior, <laughs> right? I, I always felt there was a reason if, if an artist was upset, right? You weren't doing what, what you were supposed to be doing. You put them in an awkward situation. Yeah. And especially when you talk about, I call it global superstars. With mm-hmm. Rotorner, it was great. I, I, I loved everyone, you know, from, 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 from those years with working with, you know, with, with the guys at Trivium, to you know, Rob uh, Rob Flynn at Machine Head, mm-hmm. who to this Alain Verhaver, right? Just to be very fair, yeah. When when Machine Head, I call it, was let go by the U.S. company, mm-hmm. Alain Verhaver was the guy who pushed extremely hard, with support from the U.K. and German office, to and set the case we need to continue working with the band. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know what, what happened. So we released that album internationally. I think we, it was called that one from... 2004, are we, are we talking? Yeah, was it, was, it, was it called From Ashes to Empire? Yeah, Through the Ashes of Empires. This is... Um, through the Ashes Monty, of Empire. Monty refers to this stage as the rare occurrence where a band shits lightning twice. Yeah, so, so, so the band is let go by the US company, mm-hmm. continues working with us internationally... Mm-hmm. And then in the end, in a different structure, not a direct artist signing, but in a licensing, re-signs with the U.S. company. Yeah. yeah. How amazing is that? I call it, how amazing is that? I think that, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just using that as, as, as yeah. how, how, I call it, how small this world is, how it's about dedication and the decision, by the way, I remember that as well, is at the time, right, and it happened with, with other bands and, uh, and we continued working with Fear Factory with two more albums. Mm-hmm. What happened, clearly, advance going up, sales dropping or being, or, or being flat. Yeah. So the numbers no longer match, mm-hmm. right? And most of the time, that was a situation when the artists sort of part ways with the label. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, there is no renegotiation. I think it may be in today's world, there's a renegotiation where a manager gets smart and says, you know what, if we need to find a new label, I'm going to spend £10,000 on a lawyer and contracts. You know, maybe I should take the pay cut, mm-hmm. stay with the label. You know what? You know what I actually can do? If I renegotiate a deal with less money, right? I'm using, and I, I know it's happened also at Century Media. Yeah. If I can renegotiate the deal and extend and increase the royalty on my back catalog, mm-hmm. right? I use it as an example. Yeah. So that all of these albums, which are close to or will recoup fairies, or which are close to recoupment or have recoupment, will start generating money. Yeah. That's a smart way of doing business and sticking with the label. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Makes Dino's sense. an interesting example as well because his relationship with Roadrunner it goes beyond Fear Factory, especially on that 25th anniversary album and the <laughs> show and things like that. It's, yeah. Well, he, 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 it was funny. To a friend of mine, I continued working with Fear Factory, two in- albums internationally. Mm-hmm. They were quite successful. Mm-hmm. Monty Connor was, I call it, and we made jokes about it. I was in the camp with um, Christian, what was his surname? Um, the bass player oh, and Raymond. Yeah, yeah. I supported the two of them. I was in that world. Yeah. Right. Monty was in the world of Dino. And, and Burton was somewhere in whatever world. And if you still look at what's <laughs> happening with Fear Factory recently, right? Burton and Dino, Dino had a falling out and they're still in the background, all that rumbling going on all the time with, um, with where, when, when Dino was referring to stuff, saying, yeah, we had multiple court cases with, with Christian and, yeah. and Raymond. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you were either in Dino's, I call it, world, or you were in, I call it, Fear Factory world. Right, yeah. Without right. Dino. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's interesting. It is in, it's really interesting. I, I've tried, I tried to get Dino, but I don't think he's um, got the time. Um, it was just a shame because I really want to talk about like that back-end Roadrunner um, United stuff. I'm a massive fan of that album. But just now, I'm just talking shop now, but I think Fear Factory's best days are, are now in front of them. As a result of all that clutter being left behind, I think they're going to churn out... There's gonna there's so many opportunities now for that sound and that particular brand of metal for me personally. Could be. It was it was it was yeah, like I said, it was interesting. It was yeah, it, it again, it, it was little adventures, right? And and Case wasn't keen on continuing to work with Fear Factory or Machine Head because he was about talent and development. Mm-hmm. But there was a smart business sense in the company and his team people, Mark Palmer and Hank and others, saying, Case, we know how we market Machine Head and Fear Factory. Yeah. We don't need to invest and break the band because they're established. Mm-hmm. It's just a no-brainer, these deals. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Made there sense. Examples where that, that kind of happened, where um, a band would sort of renegotiate so the advance would go down and as you say maybe the royalty would go up or whatever where they would how do how do i phrase this was there another situation such as those two bands where the relationship stayed but they had to they had to slow down the advance or they had to slow down the return on investment to keep the relationship going no well i think i think put it this way machine has fully resigning internationally and with the u.s company different deals that was the only example i have Hmm. We, I think there were two times, or maybe I don't quite remember, there was also a quite, of, quite interesting relationship with um, um, Black Label Society. Right. Mm-hmm. Where I think maybe, I don't remember if we continued internationally or we started internationally, then signed them globally and then again continued internationally, that was kind of rocky. 
um, Megadeth was very interesting because Dave Mustaine was never happy about what happened in the US. He felt the US company was not delivering. Right, okay. And then on the final album, the US company did a great job, but then that was the time when you know, the curtain closed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. I was just yeah, I was it was, Black Label Society there to see what the arrangement was, but I haven't, I haven't taken it. There were a few... Yeah, there were a few things with Black Label. Um, I remember, for example, um, we had a DLX North America with Down, Phil and Selmo's band. Yep. And Case was reluctant to pick up the option. Mm-hmm. And I said to Case, Case, I'll go back to the managers and I'll just say, if they will pick up the option for the same advance as the first album instead mm-hmm. of a, a higher number. And I'll just tell them what the logic is that we haven't recouped, that it needs to make business sense, but that the sales are healthy, that we're in a relationship. And if they want to find a new relationship, unlikely they will find the same amount of money. Well, mm-hmm. And they need to set up from scratch with a new label partner, yeah. including negotiating a deal, lawyer cost. The money, I call it the deduction or the lesser advance that I'm offering half of that is probably already taken up by legal fees. Yep. So people were into common sense, right? And this is what over the under, isn't it? This is 2007. Yeah. 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 Probably that later. did really well. I was, I'm surprised by that. I thought it was, a, I, I don't know the numbers obviously, but I thought that would have been a quite a successful album given the circumstances. It was, it was all good. Yeah. You know, Jim, that's what I'm saying. It's like, mm. When my the, the, yeah. the CFO was a proper proper number cruncher, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So if I needed to have his signature and say, "Are we going to pick up the option?" Mm-hmm. He would make me crunch numbers, or his team would do that. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to sort of like he needed to see that at a certain point it was making a contribution. Yeah. Yeah. And and case might only in our BA meeting might look at unrecouped, right? So we need to maybe debate a little bit more and present. Mm-hmm. No, but in the end, there was common sense. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was great. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing for time? Well, my, I've, I've dragged you out for ninety minutes. Oh, that's okay. Okay, that's okay. So so, if you have any questions or you have any questions now, I mean, I'm happy to talk for another 10, 15 minutes or so. And you, okay. you can always email me. That's cool, man. Um, where should I start? I've got so many, so many, 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 many questions. So let's start. Let me start with the one which I think I know the answer to. So um, one big gap in my knowledge of those first, that first run with Roadrunner, you say 84 to 86. You don't know how Carnivore got signed, do you? No. Okay, that's fine. Um, with regards to the Universal deal, was it 50-50 in 2001? How did that affect the day-to-day? Did that affect... Very how- little. Very little, okay. okay. Yeah, because, because distribution went from independent distribution in, mm-hmm. in the markets, so, so US, UK, Japan, France, Australia, went to, from independent distribution to universal. We were initially in even with Universal in Nordics, that didn't work out. And they allowed us to go 
to indie to an indie distributor. Right. Okay. Yeah, with a fifty-fifty deal, um, according to what I call it, the the um, uh, independent label organizations and what have you. Um, if it's a 50-50 deal, you're still seen as an independent, as long yeah. as the major doesn't have, it's not a controlling interest. Well, a controlling interest, they could have a controlling interest, yeah. but Universal didn't. So that was different. It sounds like they knew that they were on for the passive income ride. They knew, they knew Roadrunner knew that they, what they were doing. They didn't have to do any command and control. Obviously, they don't even have a controlling interest, but no, I'm just wondering what's... Um, um, if if they, well, I, think, I, I think I think Jim Day Day in the end when Case managed to negotiate his way out, and there were definitely I don't know who, but that's what what I've been told. There were people at Universal who got quite upset mm-hmm. because they felt they had let go of a valuable asset. Yeah, and also at, at that time. They, they that was also uh, um, I can't say true or not true. They they then stepped up their activities with Spine Farm, right? Trying to okay. position trying to position them as a competitor. Yeah. Okay, I understand. Interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, because I actually had I actually remember having a conversation with the founder of Spine Farm, the guy Riku. In, from Finland mm-hmm. about him being in the universal world, us being in the universal world, mm-hmm. how we could potentially even join forces in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Never happened. Sure, sure. Yeah. But they knew what they were, what they lost, it seems. Um, so in Degut these days, you seem to have acquired um, some of the talent and a lot of the, the harder rock, but maybe not so metal talent that was on Roadrunner. Is that on the strength of their experience with yourself? No, how I ended up with Indigood, Indigood was already in a, um, Indigood was in a relationship with, with Roadrunner. Right. Um, they, were, they were managing Theory of a Dead Man. They brought Blackstone Cherry to the label. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, there were, com- there were talks about Roadrunner sort of more or less, maybe even internationally becoming the, dedication label the, 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 for rock music. Yeah. So we, X North America, could have been X North America. We did a Hailstorm album. Mm-hmm. We did a Shinedown album, excluding UK, mm-hmm. where at, at the time people at Atlantic um, thought that it would be better with, to be with a rock specialist. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So that's how I got into the world. Indigoot was already there, and and they were previously managing Three Doors Down, another artist. Um, how I ended up with them was like summer of 2012. I went to New York, had a chat because I knew Bill McGathy and his team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a chat, and he said, "Yeah." And we talked about the international, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be really great to have you work for us." Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, but I can't afford you. He said, well, if we don't talk about money, you'll never find out if you can afford me or not. And so we've been in this relationship where, where I'm his international person on the ground um, for many years. And um, I do tool marketing um, relationships with you know, uh, local and independent, uh, local and international promoters, yep. label relationships, 
So yes, uh, I still come into, I call it the Warner building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot has changed. I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah. Um, because, because there's been lots of change, for example, with a, a new president coming in at Atlantic, a new uh, UK president coming in. Not that I actually, I do know the person. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, it's time for Bill McGatty to come to, come to London and do some, I call it, high-level powwow meetings with yeah. these new senior executives. <laughs> no, I mean that. Because that's what he and I, that's what I would help him do. He would come in. We, we would meet with our people at the various labels that we work with. Mm. So right. that's what I do with Indigood. So um, Blackstone Cherry, Theory of a Dead Man, Shinedown, Hailstorm, wow. all Rotunder acts. Yeah, is is it, the reason I comment on that is just because there's so many um, after after the 2012 acquisition and obviously a lot of a lot of bands fled Roadrunner if they had like a deal up or something like that. A lot of them end up aligning with former Roadrunner personnel like Nuclear Blast. A lot of people followed Monty and Mark. I wonder if that's the same thing happened from a management perspective for you. No, 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 no. I, I think I think I think what you need to be very precise. Um, it's interesting when an artist leaves a label mm. we're being dropped dropped sounds horrible you know what it sometimes mainly is a label there's a few things right mm -hmm. a label decides not to exercise the option mm -hmm. right it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's a one way relationship in that respect yep. we're not going to pay half a million dollars for your next album mm -hmm. for example so it's financially not, it's too much of a risk, so we're letting go. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Or a contract runs out. Yeah. So there were a number of contracts that I remember. For example, Megadeth, they were at the end of their contract. Yep. Um, we had that deal with within temptation that sort of expired again that was i don't know there were no options left there were other artists i mean trivium is still signed yeah um, slipknot is still signed yep. machine hat was different right that's why i say machine hat was different in the way they structured their deal maybe it was only i, I don't remember it was a two album deal or whatever they had with the international company yeah so or Lamb of Gold, I'm using that as an example, was a very strange deal because ba the band was signed to Sony. Management wanted to work with Roadrunner. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, when Warner looked at that, like, if you're Warner, right? Yeah. And say, like, wait a minute. We have no futures. This band is not signed. It's a U.S. band. They're not signed with our U.S. company. They're signed with a competitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't make sense to continue, sure. Because we're not making the margin with majors. With majors, the thing, Jim, is, and it's not a secret. It's about where the band is signed, right? I call that where it's signed. So any of my deals, I've done the international deal with Slash, and when I that that John, I done it. I was part of that collaborations album, and there was one more album. That deal, how management had it structured, was Rotunner for Europe, somebody else for Australia, somebody else for Japan, and they were, whatever, self-releasing in the US. 
Mm-hmm. So two albums, that second album when I left Kyoto, and it was still to the war in the structure because you know, it was good business. Yeah. And then actually, I call it whoever, Warner UK, you know, extended their deal directly with Slash. Right, okay. Because it was a good deal for them to keep for Europe. Yeah. It's yeah. about, with major labels, it's about source, right? Yeah. And with your alternate structure, um, how, how the business was structured if you were looking at, I call it, let's say, I'll use an example. If you're looking from, from, a, from a perspective from the U, Warner US or Atlantic US, because it was Atlantic US, mm-hmm. and you see that the bulk of your sales with Blackstone Cherry are overseas yeah. and not in your home market where you make your biggest margin, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a business analysis to it and you let go of an artist. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, um, I have a friend who used to be signed to Atlantic in the US. Mm-hmm. They never released his album. They put him on tour. They gave him tour support, his band, by the way, not him, his band. Yeah. And two years after the delivery of the album, the album still had not been released. And they were, and the rights were reverting to the artist, mm-hmm. because it's tough to be a UK artist to sign to be signed to somebody in New York, right? Right. Especially right. if you don't have US management, makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah. So that's what a major, major label does: you sign an artist at source, right? And it's the source company who breaks. And I remember one time being in a Warner meeting. It was just great how it all worked. Mm-hmm. They said, we got this artist it's called Ed Sheeran. And we're now <laughs> selling like half a million. Okay, there was a little bit of a conversation. And they said, it took them four years with street performances and all kinds of things yep. to get to this level. Mm-hmm. And now we want you guys in Europe to achieve a similar result. And then you could hear people say, yeah, but we're not going to get four years for this. We're going to get four months with limited access. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Still, if the music is great, we'll break, right? Yeah. So it makes sense within the major label. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Airborne, right, now with Spine Farm, they tried and they relocated to the U.S. They connected in Canada, but not in the U.S., mm-hmm. And I think at the time when I spoke to Airborne's manager, he said to me, never again. We have a great business in Australia, great business in Canada, great business in Europe and the UK. Mm -hmm. Let's not go to the US losing more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Makes sense, right? So so in that respect, when you look at it and and you look at Airborne, I think those was another one of, of a band I'm not saying let go not to be extended mm-hmm. because it didn't make sense for the label. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where in the industry people sometimes play this um, sad story. We've been, I, 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 I don't like the words dropped, right? It's mm-hmm. tough. It's a term. Let go. Well, let's put it this way. Contract expires. Business partners decided not to continue. Yeah. That's what it's quite often often is deal expired and the word like like i said megadeth um so megadeth 
within temptation, maybe even devil driver mm-hmm. at a certain point. They, they were all in those final years. But Trivium is still there. Yeah. Slipknot is still there. Stone Sour is still there. There's, mm-hmm. I don't know how, how many others. Opeth is still there, mm-hmm. right? The other thing is actually, Jim, and I just wanted to say that in my final years at Rotterdam, yeah. we became so much of a classroom. We did these deals with various people. We Dream Theater, Opeth, Occupying yeah. um, Tree, and we did great work, right? Mm-hmm. And all the classic, like the ones slash home, um, Black Label Society, Alterbridge. Mm-hmm. And even in the US, label was slightly out of tune. Mm-hmm. There were labels or um, what's that label? You had that movement with bands like Paris, mm-hmm. right? Blackfield yeah. Brides, uh, Paris, female fronted New Year's Day, maybe now. I, I call it that, that more sort of emo style. Yeah. It's not emo, but you know which I, bands I, know I mean. Yeah. Lifestyle. Asking Alexandria, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of world. I think we missed out on that. Yeah. Rotten and missed out on that. We, we, we were busy and it was great, by the way, doing Dream Theater. Yeah. But that, is, that was not a new band. In the, narr- in the whole narrative of Roadrunner, it's interesting you say that because it sort of, it does, for me, it's not quite as clear the narrative from, say, 2008 to that last stretch. From middle of the 80s, it's kind of like new wave of British heavy metal. That's the kind of thing. Late 80s, when Monty arrives, we get to thrash metal. Early 90s, it's death metal. Mid 90s to late 90s, they're kind of playing around with alt rock. 2000s, it's kind of Ron Berman's era, Theory of a Dead Man, Nickelback, that kind of stuff. And then when you hit the middle of that decade, you get Trivium, Killswitch, you get Within Temptation, you get all those great bands, and it's there's such a, it's so clear where they're going with it. And then it kind of peters out as you go towards the end. And it, the, it doesn't strike me as a lot of focus um, on a particular style. And it's interesting how you say in terms of like the Asking Alexandra, that post sort of metalcore, post-hardcore world wasn't fully realized. I find that really, really interesting. I do think, by the way, I was thinking about Gitter, uh, mm-hmm. my Gitter days. Um, I was thinking about that as well. Another band that we worked with internationally was Hatebreed and mm-hmm. also the US company for one or two albums. Yes. We were good at the, the company was such a, I call it attractive proposition for more established artists. Mm-hmm. I forgot what these bands were that that were on the road rage tours, the one after Trivium. There were there were some bands, I call it some bands, right? Mm-hmm. I, I forgot. And there was a band also who even went out on tour with Kiss and lots of things, you know, but Three Inches of Blood was another one. Yeah. But it didn't happen. They were great. Yeah, it didn't happen. I don't know. You need to talk really to, I call it, the likes of Berman or Monty or Gitter. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was not part of the A&R meetings or even or another person who's still at the label is Dave Rath. 
Dave Raad, hier was die A&R administrator en hij is stil daar in that capacity. He still signs bands, I believe. Mm. But I think maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Gitter was more in a different world um, than Monty. Um, Gitter must have found some of these newer bands, but maybe they were not connecting with the team, mm. right? Mm. It could quite well be that Case was d- dismissive of them or Jonas or somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, bringing Stefan Max into the company, right? And, and Young the Giant in the end sold 200,000 albums was sort of going to alternative rock. Yeah. Case wanted to go somewhere else, but maybe it just didn't happen. You know, I call it the, the labels, I say, Sumerian, Rice, Fearless, um, who are now all part of Concord or BMG, except Sumerian. Yeah, um, yeah it, it sort of didn't, I call it in that world, it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I, I really, I'm not part of this. It didn't, yeah. it didn't happen, right? And, and the, the the other thing is it I'm not you know, there were numerous attempts at local A and R in Australia or or the UK and with different people. Different people and, and somebody who, who I forgot what his name was, he, he he then became the head of EMI. Lots of people being with Rotener, right? Um somehow we didn't really manage to get those big European bands. Mm. Mm. Be it from Germany or in the UK. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were attempts and it took a time, but we didn't, you know, I call them the, I call them the, 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 I call them the, the raw power bands. Right. What is that? Raw power management, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Rod Smallwood and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get a bullet for my Valentine or or Bring Me the Horizon or mm. um, we had kits in glass houses, but that that did like thirty thousand in the UK. Yeah, but something that or or God knows what, you know some big gothic band in Germany, right? We, we licensed, or somehow in the US, we licensed Nightwish. Mm-hmm. We didn't sign Nightwish. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm saying at source, right? And, 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 and same sort of thing could have happened in France, but they weren't allowed even to sign local artists, I remember, because that was always a failure. And in yeah. Japan, <coughs> in Japan, it was a circus as well, right? Jim and yeah. y'all. The stuff that goes out in Japan is typically Japan only. I found. Well, yeah, and it was, I don't know. It it was always like, it was a big cultural challenge. Trust me on that. And final years, we got stuff organized. I got stuff organized, I felt. Mm -hmm. But it was a challenge. But in the UK, we we were not there with, you know, like I said, Bullet for My Valentine. What was the other band with, uh, I forgot, with the singer who went terribly wrong? Uh, Bring Me the Horizon. Big, 
No, no, no. The the, the guy. Oh, who, sorry. Um, who was in lost profits. Yeah. Yeah, lost profits. That kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. We were not in that world with him. You know, not not a lost profits, not a bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know who the bands were at the time. I mentioned in the US asking Alexander, I don't know who the bands would have been in Germany, but something that was either fully established, switching mm-hmm. to for whatever label they were at, yeah. or finding something that became a new Totenhauser or whatever. Yeah. We we sort of, in the end, we sort of did okay with Royal Republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was... A, that was brought from a completely different way. So I feel that in those last years, the local A&R, yeah, we, we were so much into this Opeth, Porcupine Tree, Dream Theater, Hatebreed, um, Joe, mm-hmm. great acts, right? Nothing wrong with that, Satyricon for that matter, all these yeah. things in our teams did great jobs. Mm-hmm. And and my job was not to sign anything that was brand new. That was clear. But right. Case wanted the guys locally to come up with these artists. Mm-hmm. And somehow it didn't happen. We were respected. People knew of the company. But somehow we didn't manage to attract, like I said, I don't know if it was feasible to attract some of these artists that are now the big UK artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And I think, I think that sums up those last... I would even say more probably the last three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. no, it's, it's, I think I think it's really interesting. But it, it's um, I'm, I'm gonna actually I'm just gonna wrap up because it's it's been nearly two hours. That's okay. Um, but well, it's been That's absolutely amazing. I've got one more question for you. Um, for right. now, have you ever seen a ghost? No. <laughs> okay. I ask everyone that, and uh, the experiences vary. It's pretty interesting. Um, I, I've got, you know, I, 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 to be honest, I've got a million more questions, but I don't want to stretch. I don't want to take two hours of your time, especially on a, on a, on a Saturday evening. Yeah. Um, okay. That's a good job. All right, Jim. Have a great Saturday. It was yeah, amazing. Yeah, you too, All right.